Tonight, as you know, we thought to respond to some of the questions that you've put in the basket. Um, I'll just read the question and then offer some responses. So how can one distinguish between diligent practice and over-efforting? What are skillful means for dealing with over-efforting? I think this is a universal yogi question, you know, finding that balance of right effort. First, to kind of ask some reflections on what diligent practice means. It's actually a section from the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, one which we didn't discuss uh, this year so far, but was in the earlier talks last year, where the Buddha describes the mindfulness of daily activities. And this is one section of the sutta. He says, whether going out or returning, the yogi acts with full attention. Whether looking ahead or looking around, he or she acts with full attention. Whether bending an arm or straightening it, he or she acts with full attention. Here they talk about robes, but we can mostly think of just our clothes. And taking one's overrobe, bowl, or spare underrobe, the yogi acts with full attention. Whether defecating or urinating, he or she acts with full attention. Whether walking, standing, or sitting, whether resting or awake, whether talking or silent, he or she acts with full attention. So that seems pretty clear. It's really to rest in that full attention or mindful awareness with the continuity so that we make the whole day seamless. We were giving equal value to every activity and we're not thinking one activity is more or less important than anything else. And this is difficult because generally we tend to privilege the sitting times, the formal sitting times, the formal walking times, and underprivilege many of the other things we do during the day. But it's clearer our mind-body process is the same in whatever we're doing. And so diligence here would mean settling back into that quality of attention, you know, in reaching for something or putting our clothes on or eating, all the things we do during the day. When Sairav Pandita first came, his first uh, teaching in this country in 1984, uh, Sharon would describe uh, her interviews with him. And we were all practicing very intensively. Uh, and she would go in with you know, all of these deep meditative experiences, but she'd walk in, she'd do the bow, and she'd start giving her report. And after about 30 seconds, I would interrupt and say, what did you notice when you were bowing? Because she wasn't really noticing anything when she was bowing. She was bowing in order to give her report. And that was the end of the interview. And so then she had to leave. And the next day she'd come in and again start to give a report. 
And then he'd ask her, what did you notice when you were putting your shoes on? She didn't notice. The interview was over. And she said this went on for weeks, that every day he would ask her about some other small little activity until finally she began practicing in a way so that she could report. You know, the, the level of attentiveness uh, was such that there was an equality of attention to everything that was done. Sometimes practicing in Asia, uh, particularly with the women yogis, I found that it was very inspiring because for the most part, obviously not everyone, but for the most part, they were practicing with that kind of diligence. You know, there was such care and such grace in everything that was done, every movement that was made. So that's what diligent effort means. What is over-efforting? What's happening when we're not just being diligent, being heedful, as the Buddha suggested, but when in some way there's too much effort, we're striving, we're forcing things. One manifestation of this over-efforting, I think, happens when we confuse aspiration and expectation. Because we can have an aspiration for our practice. And aspiration includes a sense of goal. You know, so we could even have a sense of striving for the goal. And the last words of the Buddha before his parinibbana, strive on with diligence. You know, so there's that aspect that we can have an aspiration, we can have a goal, we can know what we're doing here. We have an aim in our practice. But that's very different. Holding that aspiration, that sense of purpose, is very different than bringing expectation into our practice where we want certain things to be happening rather than others. So instead of the relaxing back into the moment and just being with what is, the expecting mind comes in, and if it's not what we like or want, doesn't fit our idea of what should be happening, so then it's a setup for a lot of discouragement, disappointment, struggle, you know, and so then maybe we try harder, you know, with, with that sense of wanting, and it just deepens that cycle. Sometimes this happens in very kind of obvious, we could say gross ways, where we're just struggling to get some state that's not present. You know, maybe the mind is restless, or maybe it's confused, or maybe it's sleepy. And instead of settling back and being mindful of mind, as we talked about last week, Oh, this is the sleepy mind, this is the restless mind, this is the confused mind. Opening to it, accepting it, instead of that, when we're over-efforting, we're struggling to get rid of that for something else. So I think I've mentioned this in earlier talks. Struggle 
is always a sign of non-acceptance of something. You know, so when you feel yourself over-efforting, when you feel that sense of struggle, sit back and ask yourself, let that be the, the mindfulness bell to remind you to ask yourselves, what's here that I'm not accepting now? What state in the body? What feeling in the body? What quality in the mind? And as soon as we can back up and accept what's there, and most likely it's unpleasant, but in the moment of accepting it, then there's no struggle, there's no forcing, <clears throat> there's no over-efforting at that time. So sometimes the over-efforting takes the form of trying to get through difficult experiences, force our way through. Sometimes over-efforting can happen when we're overweighting the investigation factor. You know, when actually things are going pretty well, but the mind keeps nudging us. Can I see more? How much more can I see? I'm not seeing enough. You know, as if somehow, if we just look harder, the Dharma will reveal itself. Uh, And I had an experience like this in Burma, uh, where my practice was going quite well. My mind was concentrated. I was quite finely attuned. But I kept wanting to see more and more and more. And, you know, as I've mentioned at different times to you, Sayadaw, in this one interview, just said that I was too attached to subtlety. You know, that... And I was, and it was a very it was a very fruitful remark for me because in my mind I thought I was doing the practice well, you know, by that over investigation, by looking, trying to look deeper and see more. And I didn't realize it was just another kind of striving, another kind of greed. So when you feel that sense of over efforting First, check out whether there's some difficult state that you're simply not accepting. Check out to see if there's an expectation in the mind you know, of wanting something else. Check out to see if the mind is leaning forward in investigation, over-investigation, The word that for me best describes diligence or the balance of diligence, investigation, without over-efforting is the, is the word and the quality of interest. Can we simply take interest in what it is that's arising moment to moment? In a couple of the interviews today, some of these questions came up as well. A few, a few uh, phrases that might help you come to balance when you feel you are over-efforting. When it's not simply being diligent, which the Buddha clearly recommended, but there's that sense of forcing things or struggling or over-efforting. 
a phrase that has helped me a lot is, I use it as a little mantra in my mind, already aware. Already aware, because the nature of the mind is awareness. And so when I feel myself leaning forward in the practice, and oh, already aware, I can feel that settling back into the moment again. Sometimes people get into a little struggle around the phrase letting go. You know, when the mind is caught up and it's identified with something and attached and we have this sense, oh, I have to let go, I have to do something here, but I can't, and then get tied up in a little knot about that. Letting go might not be the right phrase because letting go implies doing something. You know, something we need to do. A better phrase, or a couple of different alternatives, might be, instead of letting go, reminding yourself to simply let it be. Just whatever it is, let it be. Let it be. And you can put it to music. Let it be. Because in the letting it be the truth of impermanence will take care of whatever it is. It's not that we have to let it go. It will go by itself. And we just need simply to to create the space, which is the letting it be. We create the space, and then everything in its own nature comes and goes. So again, that's a way of letting go of a certain kind of struggle we might get into. Already aware, let it be. It's really a question of simply not holding on to what it is that's arising, rather than us having to do anything. Okay, we could go on and on about diligent practice and over-efforting, and there's a lot. I mean, this is the the great challenge of um, right effort. You know, and right effort, as you know, is it's a factor of the Eightfold Path. It's the quality that appears in the 37 factors of enlightenment. Effort, right effort, appears more often than any other quality. So it's an important one to understand and to find the right balance with. Um, and for myself, and I know probably for most yogis, this is an ongoing, feels like, it feels like in some way all of our practice is the exploration of right effort. You know, when you feel like you're getting just lost a lot and wandering a lot and not being very diligent, so then a little more effort is required. If you're over-efforting, if you're struggling, if you're forcing, then a relaxing back in some of the ways I suggested. Can you talk about access concentration and what is the experience of it? There are two uh, different kinds of access concentration. One is that in the path of samatha, jhana practice, so access concentration means, and this is in the classical description of jhana practice, 
where you know there's a there's a nimitta or a sign in the mind, an image in the mind, which is in the neighborhood of full absorption. And so as as the mind is concentrated and it gets some sign, and it can be many different signs, then the mind uh, focuses quite easily on that, and with that as a basis, then it can go into a fuller kind of absorption. Uh, So that's one meaning of it. But the one that's, for most of us, more relevant uh, in the Vipassana practice, the axis concentration means something else. And I'll just give you an image, which uh, probably most of you are familiar with from previous talks. Uh, But it described, for me in my own practice, a really major shift. In the very early years of my practice, when I was struggling a lot with concentration, you know, I really had none at all when I began practice. I would just sit and my mind would wander for the hour. So I was really working at it, and it was, it was quite difficult. But at a certain point, and just as a little footnote, the metta practice for me helped a lot to develop the samadhi. Uh, so just uh, at some point, and many of you have done metta practice, but it can be a very useful way to strengthen the concentration. But when the concentration reached a certain point, it was like in the beginning, I felt like I was balancing on the top of the a top of an arch, you know. And I would keep fall, I would keep sliding down, or falling down, and then there would be this huge effort to get back up to the top, and then my mind would fall down again, back up to the top, and fall down, back up to the top. So it was this constant struggle to stay concentrated. And I wasn't that successful for quite a while. But at a certain point, when the samadhi did develop, it's like the arch became a trough, and I was just balancing in the bottom of the trough, and every, from time to time, the mind would be pulled out from that place of balance, but then it would fall back naturally to the place of balance at the bottom. Be pulled out and then fall back naturally. And that was the beginning of Vipassana access concentration. Right? When there's enough momentum of attention so that the momentum of the mindfulness and the momentum of the samadhi is carrying the practice forward, it becomes a lot more effortless. We're not struggling in each moment to be present. And it doesn't mean we don't get distracted, we do but it falls back quite naturally at that time. The benefit or the value of developing uh, this level of concentration is that for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, the hindrances are kept at bay because of this forward momentum that's just carrying the practice. The hindrances don't have quite as much force in the mind um, you know, to, to pull us away. It's not that they don't, they don't arise, but 
when the concentration has not been developed at least to this extent, uh, then the hindrances can be these powerful, frequent attacks. You know, and it's like struggling again and again to come back. When we have this access concentration, there's a there's an easy flow, and the hindrances can still come, but there's a much greater ease in working with them at that time. So how to strengthen or how to develop this level of concentration? And it's not, this is not an undoable thing. And many of you, many of you have experienced it and do experience it in your practice. But for some, uh, there are some things which I found helpful in order to develop it and to strengthen it. And it has to do with finding a certain balance in the mind between a strong effort and relaxation. So, for example, sometimes there can be quite a determined effort, okay, I'm going to stay with the breath, you know, beginning, middle, and end, and to work as I've mentioned at different times, not only with a whole breath to work with a half breath, just a half breath at a time. You know, so we're not taking on something that's too much for our minds. Uh, in a whole breath, the mind can find ample room to wander. A half breath is often, we're quite capable of sustaining our attention for that duration. And so we just do half breath, half breath, half breath, half breath, half breath. And after some time, we find that the mind is quite naturally concentrated. So sometimes we're making a strong effort to stay with that half breath. But sometimes if the effort is too much, that the move for us to achieve the concentration might be to relax more a bit, to become more receptive. And a, a, an attitude or you know, a metaphor for that kind of attention is the quality of listening. You know, so again, it's, it's more on the non-doing side. And it's not... With the breath, obviously, it's not listening to the sound of the breath. But I'm just using that as an image for receptivity. So just a half breath at a time. But instead, in this case, not making an effort to stay with it. Rather, it's relaxing back into a receptive listening. And sometimes that's all that's needed for the mind to settle into a place of concentration. Finding that balance for yourself when you need to be more effortful, when you need to be less effortful. And it's playing with that. Another way of developing the access concentration, that level of samadhi, is to understand how to interweave a directed awareness on the breath 
and a more open, choiceless awareness on changing objects. And I see these two as, as the image in my mind is like a double helix. You know, the strands of DNA, how they interweave with one another. And so sometimes we are just focusing on the breath. And if at a certain point it feels like it's getting too tight, then it might be helpful to open up the awareness in a more choiceless way, just settling back and noting moment after moment whatever it is that's arising at any of the sense doors. And then at a certain point, if you feel that that's getting a little too spacey, you know, you're losing a focus, to again interweave, come back to a directed awareness on the breath. And most of you probably already have a feel for this. But pay attention to your own intuitive sense of when it's appropriate to be directed, when it's appropriate to be more open, And to realize that the practice unfolds through this very intuitive interweaving of these two approaches. There were were a lot of questions on... uh, about effort and diligence and over-efforting. So please comment. In deciding what is skillful, how to know what changed as a result of my decision and what is a result of things changing of their own accord due to their own lawfulness. And the example was, for example, going to bed. So as I understood this question, how do we know whether something that happens happens as the result of our decision? For example, you decide to go to bed at a certain hour and the next morning you're rested. Is that because of the wise decision you made or is it would you have been rested if you had stayed up for another three or four hours? Is there something that's just happening, you know, according to its own lawful nature, quite independent of our decision? And this, of course, ties into the whole question of understanding what diligent practice means and how do we know and what's the basis for our decision. And being up at night is a good example. First, I think it's most helpful to look at the motivation. You know, do you stay up because you think you should? You know, you have some kind of superego notion that a good yogi stay up. Do you stay up because you have interest in just exploring what will happen if you stay up? If you go to sleep, what's the motivation for that? You know, is it because it feels like you need rest? Is it because you're bored? Is it because you're lazy? You know, all of these things uh, 
can, can uh, flavor the motivation of our actions. So looking at the motivation really is the key to determining what it is we should do. It's not so much a question of trying to control the outcome, because we won't know the outcome. You know, with the most pure motivation in the world, things may not turn out the way we want them to. That's really not that important. You know, as I think I mentioned in one of the earlier talks, of the Dalai Lama saying that the measure of an action is not its success or failure, but the motivation behind it. And that's a, that's a very, to me, a very radical statement because we're so used to measuring both our actions in the world and the choices we make on retreat. We used to measure them by their ostensible success or failure. But we realize we can't control outcome. All we can do is become aware of and train our motivation. One of the beauties of this place, you know, for practice, is that there's no schedule. So you can sort of enjoy the freedom to explore and to investigate. You know, you're up at night, maybe it's 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, and it's like, oh, I put in a full day. Let me go to sleep. Or, oh, if I don't go to sleep now, I'm going to be really exhausted tomorrow. Or something like that. Be brave. You know, just, just experiment. If you have the interest, it's not, it's not to force anything. But if you have the interest and you still have some energy... Just do some walking, you know, have a cup of tea and, and walk and sit again. See what happens. There were times in my practice where also it wasn't a course, it wasn't a retreat, there was no schedule, I was just on my own. This was in Bodhgaya. And I used to love the late night hours, the hours between midnight and four, midnight and three was so wonderful because it's like the whole world was asleep, was my immediate world. You know, it was so incredibly peaceful. And then if I got tired during the day, I rested a little bit. So use the time. Just use this time and space you know, to push at the edges, push at the limits of habit, push at the boundaries a little bit, when you can do it with a skillful motivation, you know, that is of interest rather than of a should. And the converse of all this is, you know, 10 and 11 o'clock at night and you're, you're really tired, then it's time to go to sleep, you know, and get some rest and maybe get up a little earlier. So there's a lot of freedom here for you to explore and to play and to see what the boundaries are, what's habit, what else can be done. Uh, So take advantage. It's really a great opportunity.
Okay, why didn't the Buddha just say in one step, life is suffering when there is craving and grasping, and two, here's the Eightfold Path? What are we getting out of four steps? And here's talking about the Four Noble Truths. I don't quite get it. Please elaborate what we get with four steps rather than two. Well, I don't know why the Buddha just didn't give two, but in thinking about the question and in the way the Four Noble Truths are described, there's a different word suggested for what we should do with each of the truths. And that, to me, is kind of an indication of why the Buddha may have laid it out in those four steps. For example, in the first noble truth, he said, the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering, is to be understood. So he's, my my understanding of this, the Buddha's saying, There is a truth of suffering, and we need to understand it, not to avoid it, not to deny it, not to try to cover it, really to come to an acceptance of the truth, of the unsatisfactoriness, the unreliability. So there's a very specific... There's a very specific end for us in our practice of this truth. We have to understand suffering. In the second noble truth, the Buddha is saying, we need to abandon the cause of suffering. So he's not saying, he's not saying that we simply need to understand the cause of suffering. In the second noble truth, he's saying we need to abandon the cause of suffering. And what is the cause of suffering? Of course, it is the attachment to desire. Attachment to anything. So we need to abandon that. And So it's pointing us in the direction of what our practice actually is. We need to accept, see, understand the truth of suffering. We need to abandon the cause of suffering. The third noble truth, he says, we need to realize the end of suffering. So again, it's a very direct pointing to the fact that this is not about some philosophical inquiry. There's something here to realize. So how do we realize the end of suffering? You know, we do it, or we could think of it in two ways. One is we realize the end of suffering as the different defilements are uprooted from the mind. You know, and this happens at the different stages of awakening. But we can also understand the realization of the end of suffering in a more moment-to-moment way. In any moment of mindfulness, in any moment of freedom from defilement, we are actually experiencing a moment of freedom. Last night I was having dinner with some friends in Amherst, also Dharma practitioners. Um, 
And this one friend, just we were talking after dinner, and she just turned to me and she said, it was quite a, quite a surprising question. This is an old, an old good friend. She turned to me and she said, uh, what's most important in your life now? You know, and I really wasn't, we were just chatting away. <laughs> and then, what's most important in your life? And I could see my mind doing a quick little social repartee <laughs> in the moment. But then I gave the question some serious thought. Well, what really is most important in my life now? And as I went through the quick Rolodex files of important things, what really is most important was in any moment whether the mind is free or not free. But that is, for me, and I think for you, otherwise you probably wouldn't be here, that is what's most important. In any moment, are we free? Is the mind free? That is free of clinging, free of reactivity, or not? Are we caught in some way? And so to see the practice here not as the practice of getting something, but I see it as the practice of freedom. And that's what you're doing here throughout the day. That's what the diligence is about. That's what the continuity is about. And in that way, we're not postponing. It's not saying, well, we're practicing in order to, 20 years down the road, get something. That we are actually practicing being free. And then sometimes we're not. And then we remember again. And we are again. And we practice it. So that, to me, is the most immediate realization of the Third Noble Truth. Now, that's something that we can be with in a moment-to-moment way. So the end of suffering is to be realized. And the Fourth Noble Truth, you know, the Eightfold Path, is to be developed. It's to be cultivated. This is my understanding of why the Buddha put it in four steps, right? Because there are very specific, there's a very specific uh, task for each one of these truths. This next question is also related. Why does it matter whether or not there is a self? Well, the Buddha talked of this belief in self, this core belief in self, as being the most dangerous of the defilements. Because in a fundamental way, it's this belief in self which is the root of all the others. It's this belief in self which feeds and nourishes all the others. And, you know, as most of you know, at the first stage of realization of what's called stream entry, it's this defilement, along with a couple of others, that is uprooted. It's the beliefs in self 
which is uprooted. And that's the reason that from that point, enlightenment, full enlightenment, is guaranteed because the root of suffering has been cut. The habit patterns are still there, and so there's still much more work to do. But we have cut the root. So it would be worth just looking a little bit at what this notion or this belief, this sense of self is, you know, and how it manifests and why it is so uh, fundamental in this this, uh, understanding what freedom is and what suffering is. It's a sense of self. It's that belief in a self which could be understood as the, as the thread through all of our samsaric wandering. You know, whether you see that within one lifetime or you see it over many lifetimes, it's the sense of self. When we look back to the past, when we look to the future, you know, I did that, you know, I was with that person, I was doing that activity, I will be doing this, I will be meeting that person. And it's always the I which is the moving force or the the generating force of the cycle of becoming. I will be this, I will do that. It keeps us it keeps us entangled on this wheel of samsara, of this wheel of desire and craving and result. We can see the constriction, we can see the prison-like quality of this sense of self when we look to see how it is manifesting just in our experience. And we, we experience the sense of self in every moment when we're identified with one, one thing or another. For example, how strong is the sense of self through identification with this body? We take the body to be who we are. This is me. And what's the result of that? You know, as it ages, as it gets sick, as it dies, we suffer. Because we're, if, if, and to the extent that we are identified with it. And if we're not identified with it, then it's no problem. Then it's just a natural, lawful process happening, and the mind stays free. There's a very big difference. You know, in our relationship to our bodies, depending on whether there's a view of self with regard to it, or there isn't. We can see the difference very clearly in terms of our experience when we're identified with our thoughts and when we're not. And of course a retreat, being on retreat like this, it's so powerful because we see over and over again what it's like to be caught up and carried away in a thought process. And 
And in terms of the freedom, it doesn't really matter whether the thought is pleasant or whether it's unpleasant. We're equally caught. You know, and you know, you know, you're all very familiar with that feeling of being caught up, carried away, lost in whatever little mind drama is going on, and then all of a sudden awakening from it. You know, oh, yeah, that was just a thought. And the difference, the, the, the sense of contraction that's felt when we're lost in the thought and then that sense of expansiveness when we awaken from being lost and say, oh yeah, just a thought. That's all it was. So the sense of self that's created in that identification with thought has a very powerful effect on how we live our lives. It was so interesting. Just this last weekend I was home. I was visiting my mother and then there was a big family family wedding. So there was this big big family event. And basically the experience is the experience I had of being there this was my perception anyway that basically everybody was just totally identified with every thought they had you know and that's just ordinary life that's that's just how people live you know thoughts come and they're identified with it and either express it or don't express it, but are feeling that tightness. And it's so rare, you know, in this world to have a mind that's aware enough and mindful enough and spacious enough, at least at times, to see thoughts just coming and going quite impersonally, not I, not self, not mine. It's a very different way of being. So the question, why does it matter whether or not there's a self? Because the self is the source of so much suffering. And the self is not something that actually exists. It's simply a felt sense that happens in those moments when we're identified with experience. Moment of non-identification, moment of not-self. It's very simple. So we see it in identification with the body, we see it in identification with thoughts. Of course, we see it a lot in identification with the emotions that come. You know, when we're caught up in the anger or sadness or frustration or sorrow or happiness or joy or grief or whatever it is, to the degree that we're identified in that emotional storm, we're really tossed about a lot. And to the degree that we have that spaciousness of mind to see the emotion themselves as impersonal, mindfulness of the mind, as we talked about. The mind filled with desire, the mind not filled with desire. Mind filled with anger, not filled with anger. Very balanced, equanimous way. And of course, the, the most subtle identification, the most subtle creation of the felt sense of self is when we're identified with consciousness itself. We become the observer, the witness. So that's, that's like the last holdout 
of the sense of I. And so our practice is also about seeing through that, seeing that awareness itself is non-personal, doesn't belong to anybody. It's just another empty process. This just seems so important to me. Because this whole question of self and not self also points to just the different level of relative and ultimate truth. You know, and how in our lives we bring those two into balance. Because on the relative level, we are relating to one another and in the world as separate individuals. And yet at the same time, if we have an understanding of the more ultimate level, we could say of emptiness, of selflessness, then we play in the world and don't get caught so much. An example I've used often in different talks, and I like it because it, I think it has the potential to just enlighten one. If one heard it in just the right way, you know, it could be enough. So let's try. (laughs) But it's the image which, again, I've I've used in different talks, but it's the image of, of... being in a movie theater, you know, and, and you could think of the movie theater as, as our lives, you know, and we're just totally caught up in the movie, you know, we've, we're caught up emotionally and we're lost, we're lost in the story of the movie, or maybe even taking the image a little further, maybe we imagine ourselves to be a character in the movie. So we're not even in the audience. We're actually on the screen. You know, and our lives is just the story playing itself out. But then somehow we come to an understanding you know, that what's on the screen is just light being projected through some film. And that there's nobody really up there at all. There's no men. There's no women. There are no car chases. You know, there's no murders. There's no love affairs. It's just color and form, light and shadow, you know, happening. There's no one there at all. That's the understanding of selflessness that we can come to. On the relative level, we're living our lives, all the relationships and stories, and on a more ultimate level, no one's there at all. So this is this is the depth and the possibility you know, offered by the practice and, and just paying careful attention to what is really going on when we're not identified moment to moment with the body, with thoughts, with emotions, with awareness, then everything is seen just as things are seen just as they are. 
know, as passing, changing, transforming elements. You know, as Manindraji used to say, just this flow of empty phenomena flowing on. That's all that's happening. And still on the relative level we engage. So that's the balance. There's a big difference whether we're going through life with this core belief in self and I and when we're beginning to see through it, to see the illusory nature of that. And selflessness is really the doorway to freedom. Okay, so for the last question, there are a few more, but don't have time. Uh, there are two of equal interest. <laughs> well, this one says, May the merit of my practice be for the benefit of all beings. So the question is, what is the benefit of my practice to others? You know, we make this aspiration, may my practice be for the benefit of all. It can be hard to see. You know, I'm here, what is sitting here watching my breath? How does that help anybody? It helps in a couple of quite profound ways, I think. One is the more we understand ourselves, the more we understand everybody else because our stories are all different. You know, we have different background, different family history, whatever. So our particular stories are different, but the nature of this mind, body, heart, the nature is the same. The nature of pain, the nature of sorrow, the nature of happiness, the nature of joy, it's the same in all of us. And so to the degree that we understand ourselves in this way, there's a great commonality, shared commonality of experience with all others. This becomes the foundation of compassion. Because when we realize the suffering in ourselves and we see that in ourselves, then when we can see and feel the suffering of others, we know what it's like because we've seen it in ourselves and our own experience. And so it becomes the basis of compassionate response. You know, it's so easy for people who have not looked deeply within themselves and have not opened to their own suffering. It's so easy for them to dismiss the pain of others, and we see it happening in the world, you know, so often. And I'm sure you've had the experience, and this is one of the beautiful, for me, um, integrative aspects of awareness and the Brahma Viharas, simply through the practice of mindfulness, as we become more aware as, as our attention, as our awareness gets more refined in our own experience, compassion arises naturally and metta arises naturally. 
we could almost say that compassion and loving kindness and all of the Brahma Viharas really are the activity of awareness. They're the activity of wisdom. So this is one way that our practice benefits others. The more we understand ourselves, the more we understand each other, the more we relate to each other. The second way our practice benefits others is the understanding that if we are more loving, if we are more peaceful, there's that much more love and peace in the world. If we're less angry, less judgmental, less fearful, less greedy, there's that much less selfishness, that much less judgment or greed or fear in the world. In other words, we are Our whole mind-body system, it's an, it's an vibrating, resonating energy system. Just in its very nature, it is affecting. It is affecting everyone, not only around us, but even much further, because we are vibrating a certain quality of energy. You know, is it an energy of hate or is it an energy of love? Is it an energy of generosity? Is it an energy of greed? It's manifesting whether we intend for it to or not. Because this whole this whole mind body is an energy system. We cannot help but affect those around us. So then the then the question is, well, how are we affecting them? What are we what are we manifesting you know, in ourselves? So one way of understanding the practice is that a natural outcome will be that it will benefit others. As I say, as we purify our minds, that's what's getting expressed. That's what's being put out. That's what's resonating outward. But there's another way and this, you know, we've talked a lot about, a lot about over past years. One way is understanding that our practice can't help but benefit others. To putting the motivation to benefit others at the very front of our practice. So instead of just realizing, yes, it will naturally benefit others as we purify ourselves, we can put that up front as the motivation for why we practice. And this, of course, is the aspiration of bodhicitta, where we undertake the practice with the motivation, may it be for the benefit of all. Now, and that, be- that can become the driving force, that can become the energizing force for us. May my practice be for the benefit of all beings. The Dalai Lama wrote something so typically Dalai Lama-ish. He said, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. (laughs) When I think about it, 
I cannot find in myself any specially good quality except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. And, uh, and I, I just love the, the simplicity and the humility. You know, and this is, of course, somebody from somebody very accomplished. But just this aspiration, the kind heart, that our practice be for the welfare, for the benefit of other beings. But actually our whole life can be motivated by that wish. And to realize, as the Dalai Lama said, I cannot pretend that I'm really able to practice this, but deep in my heart I know it's a good idea. Mm-hmm.